Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday morning, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. I'm Good to be back. Hope you're... All those who are having hangovers today, (laughs) welcome to them. We'll try to talk a little softly for them. I was <laughs> there is there is something about the day after Purim I'll tell you. <laughs> I mean I, I didn't do any drinking frankly, but uh, there's something about today where it's uh, I don't know just it feels a little bit more uh, uh, comfortable than usual or maybe lazy than usual. But anyway, uh, the weekly at least they have Shabbos this time to recuperate. That's true. But it is true what you said that I saw driving around to see the costumes, the creativity, the investment people made in the in the uh, things not only for children but for adults it's quite remarkable yeah lots of interesting things going on a lot of very creative people out there uh what do you th- it took me by surprise what do you think of uh of the uh, senate vote regarding daylight savings time this could be a, a very interesting change uh for the orthodox jewish community both in terms of daily davening to uh, daily tefillah and of course the times that Shabbos will begin and end during the winter. Uh, I, I didn't even realize this was going on. Did it catch you by surprise? I did not know it either, that the, that they were voting and um, going to make the law to keep the daylight savings year-round. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, it's it's got a lot of implications, and it's the reason some uh, uh, I know that they're good and some others have uh, come out against it. But especially when children have to go to school in the morning and it's dark, but at the same time our children come back when it's dark uh, because of a longer day in Yeshivot. So it's, it's, um, it has a lot of implications that we have to think about. Yeah, when it happened in the 1970s, if I remember correctly, the issue was the safety of the children. That's why they went back to implementing four or five months of standard time. Um, after after the two-year experiment. So we'll see what will happen. But, boy, it could really, aside from the safety issue, not to minimize that, uh, and, of course, the start of Shabbos, etc., uh, the daily tefillah, the daily davening, is going to be quite a challenge because both Zman tefillah and Zman tefillin are going to be much later. And they're late already this time of year, but they're going to be much later. And in some cities in the western part of different time zones, it's really going to have massive implications uh, Malcolm, it's a week later, and uh, obviously those who are tuned in are very curious about your perspective regarding what's happening with Russia and uh, the Ukraine. Um, what could you tell us first about the Jewish communities? Obviously, there's been a major effort from the Ukraine to get as many people out as possible and to include them among the refugees that are being uh, uh, reestablished in other countries. Uh, in Russia, I know that some people have left, but obviously that's not nearly as um, as urgent they matter because they are the aggressor in this case and not being attacked. What could you tell us about the effort to resettle Jews? So the uh, uh, the effort is uh, widely expansive, but first there is the rescue uh, effort and the, to get them across borders and to try within the within Ukraine to uh, find places, uh, safe havens. To provide them with uh, food and and support, and especially for the elderly who are not capable of moving, uh, the joint I know, for instance, the JDC has uh, several thousand people caretakers whom they pay to work with Holocaust survivors and others, elderly Jews, and they can't; they're not mobile, so they pay for them to to work and during this period, uh, and to stay in many cases in the homes of the, their clients. 
and there's so many ramifications that uh, we don't consider. They they were smart and pre-stocked food and and resources uh, before in the months leading up to this uh, to the outbreak of the actual violence. There are other communities that did not, and food supplies even where they did are running low. Uh, people are on the move constantly, and it becomes more and more difficult. The, the bus drivers charge outrageous amounts to move people, and the uh, borders uh, situations are very complicated. Uh, so once they get to the border, they can be online for a day for more uh, waiting and even being processed uh, on the borders. Poland has taken in a couple million, and you know there's a limit to the capacity. Moldova per capita has taken in more than anybody else. Uh, they're going to Romania. They're going to literally every border. And supposedly there are going to be nine corridors created to, to get people out. Uh, and yet uh, many want to stay. The men have no choice between 18 and uh, 60. As I said, when I saw the plane in Israel, uh, one of the first planes to arrive, uh, there were 158 people, 20 males, and most of them over 60, right. and yet not one suitcase. And so people are coming literally with, with the clothes on their back. They're leaving behind, and they're giving reports of looting and um, of, the, of the properties as soon as people leave, uh, which I guess happens in, in more situations uh, generally. The, um, there is concern about R- Russian Jews are also leaving, um, people who not only reject this the, the war but who... Uh, are afraid of the consequences, but many lost their jobs because the nationals, uh, the international companies that pulled out, and they are uh, also applying uh, to leave in greater numbers. Uh, we also are seeing hints of anti-Semitic themes and, and stuff coming up, which is, uh, of course, something we, we try to monitor and watch. The government, uh, obviously in in, uh, in Ukraine, the government is... Um, is overwhelmed by by the needs, and President Zelensky has appealed now to Congress to he's speaking to Knesset, he's speaking to all the government bodies he can, and to others. He spoke to us um, last week. Uh, you know, he's making very strong appeals to for assistance. Israel, I think, has responded amazingly. They're setting up this field hospital, and tens and tens of tons of material are being sent to enable that uh, field hospital to to function. Uh, And yet there are people who always will single out Israel, which has taken in uh, over 5,000, considerably more, actually. And they do take non-Jews. They do take others uh, on a temporary basis. But they have the same rules and regulations they did before. People are coming as tourists, don't need visas, but people who are coming to stay uh, do, because there has to be some process, as every other country does when when people want to come they they've been greeting them and treating them very generously i saw this setup how people as soon as they arrive they get a bank account they get insurance they get other things taken care of uh and as somebody said the five thousand or six thousand or more are five or six thousand more than the u.s has taken or more than england has taken and yet um, we see again those who take advantage of these situations to, to focus on israel um, you, you mentioned the president of the Ukraine. I, I was curious about the uh, all the addresses to the different bodies of government, as you pointed out, including the United States Congress. Um, I, I, I would assume that there is no downside to it. Uh, 
that if uh, you know a world leader like himself and someone now has hope high profile as himself makes a plea to governments around the world, you know he's got nothing to lose, so to speak. Is there any flaw in that strategy? Does the United States or any other country react differently because he's doing this in front of the entire world? I think they react uh, strongly. I think it's a very smart tactic because he builds up public pressure on Congress and others. I mean, there's there, there's concern, obviously, about uh, taking sides and, and escalating the violence. Uh, right now, I think the violence is at a at a high level anyway. But the the tactic is really a very creative one, and and he goes directly to the people when he speaks to the members of Congress, as we saw. He was really talking to the American people, and turned and, and people, uh, members of Congress, you know, were crying and uh, certainly touched emotionally. And he, he makes a very strong plea. And this the guy was an entertainer. He knows how to talk to people. He's uh, he's quite fluent and finished off in in English. Uh, and he's um, I, I think think it's uh, it it has served the purpose that it's built up the pressure for the United States to provide more and more. Um, uh, defensive equipment and even some offensive equipment, uh, not yet to the point where we close the skies. I think everybody agrees it's, it's a risky strategy, but the providing them with Stinger missiles or other things to take down aircraft or to be able to defend uh, the country has broad support. Do you think the president of the United States, instead of waiting until next week, should have really picked up immediately and gone to the region as other world leaders did uh, just to uh, demonstrate to the world the urgency of the matter and that he should be there and all world leaders should be you know, focused on the situation as soon as possible? Well, it certainly demonstrates the level of concern and the, um, uh, it brings attention uh, but also brings tensions with it. Uh, you know, burdening the countries with having foreign leaders there. There were several foreign ministers who went this past week. Uh, they they obviously showed the flag, and I think it's harder for Russia to bomb Kiev if you have uh, foreign leaders there. So maybe they should be rotating in into the areas where there has been heavy shooting and see if the Russians will continue. Uh, I think that, that it might be less of a disincentive than some believe. But the president, uh, you know, he, he can work from Washington. The question is what they do, not where they do it, and sending clear messages. And the question is, should we have done this earlier? Should there have been preemptive measures? Uh, you know, all of those things will be debated, and there will be a lot of books written about this. Well, I mean, what can you tell us from your point of view? Is he handling it well? Is he uh, doing what he should be doing, even if it's from Washington and not from Eastern Europe? I think a lot of what they should be doing in terms of providing assistance and aid and and the the question though that people are raising and analysts raise is not just so much what we're doing it's the messages that we have sent has them the United States sent a message from Afghanistan and other recent incidents in the Gulf that we are not prepared to take a, a strong stand uh, and that that induces people like uh, um, Putin to to act, or does does um, uh, you know does the, is the role that the United States and other powers can play is to try and bring this to a rapid conclusion and to get it and to build pressure. He certainly has taken all of the economic measures, and you have to credit that with building the coalition and getting uh, all European countries and others to join in the in the sanctions uh, efforts. 
frankly, I also think that the, the message maybe from the Iranian negotiations uh, reinforced this image, and uh, that, frankly, is of very great concern now, the direction that that's taking. But overall, you know, you, you hear it in the Gulf, you hear it from others. Um, in, in regard to Iran, you see how the Sunni countries, the Arab allies and many others, are drawing very harsh conclusions and concerns and talking about having to go their own way, and that plays into the hands of others, and especially in this case uh, we see with China when Saudi Arabia is talking about dealing with the one instead of dealing with the dollar, the petrodollar, which is very critical to, to America's currency's value. The um, I mean, there are just so many ramifications of, of everything. It's easy to be a, an armchair critic when you're not in the front lines, but the... Um, you know, there'll be, as I said, a lot of assessments afterwards about both the strategy and the messages that we've been sending that does America really stand by its ally? Do we do we force NATO to to start shaping up? And when you, you see the lack of of capacity on the part of many of the European countries, Germany is now talking about a massive rebuilding of its military because it was it's of such limited capacity. And it's true of, of many of the other countries in Europe. They cannot defend themselves, let alone defend others. All of these things are, are going to be and are being already assessed. Are we heading to a formal agreement with Iran? I don't know if there'll be a ceremony, but are we getting to that point now? Or are, are we one week closer to, uh, to an actual agreement, one that you'll likely and most of us will be dissatisfied with? But will there be a formal arrangement at this point? So it looks like there will be, and uh, there, I can't say it's steamrolling towards one, but it's certainly moving closer and closer, and new aspects are being revealed. Again, it's a little bit hard to know what's actually fully true and what's not true, but some of the issues that people should be, uh, be looking at is, are we going to take the IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard, murderers, their officers, the, the, off the terror, international terror list, which the uh, uh, Trump administration put them on. Will we um, follow the example of England, which paid them $522 million of money that was owed to Iran or being held uh, in exchange for getting out a couple of, uh, of the uh, people being held by Iran? And it will, is this all part of a bigger a mutual release of, of people being held. Iran is demanding the release of people in the United States. The United States obviously is demanding the release of people being held in Iran. Then you look at, uh, uh, that's one aspect, is just what what is going to be included in the deal? What are the sweeteners that Iran has demanded? One of them that obviously would be of great concern is that Russia, the sanctions against Russia would not apply in their dealings with Iran. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what it is, which means that Russia benefits both ways. They are pushing a hard line on the part of the Iranians. They're deeply involved in the negotiations. And the negotiators said that Iran is getting things they never could have expected to get. At the same time, they have concerns. They don't want to see a nuclear Iran. But more importantly now, because of the financial constraints on them, they need Iran as an outlet. So if Iran doesn't sign a deal, then Two million barrels a day of oil are kept off the market, which keeps the price high, and Russia is the biggest exporter of oil. If they make a deal, then Russia can avoid the sanctions by exporting oil through Iran, can bypass the sanctions, economic and other sanctions um, via Iran, 
uh, and Iran obviously benefits by getting people estimate ten billion, a hundred billion, five hundred billion dollars over the course of time, but even initially could be in the tens of billions of dollars in uh, in money. At the same time, Iran launches missiles at Erbil in Iraq, saying that they were the reports where they were targeting Israeli training camps when there are no training camps there, Mossad training camps. The United States, Iraq, everybody has denied it. Uh, others believe they were aiming for the U.S. consulate that's being built there. But regardless, you see that they're continuing their aggressive behavior everywhere. They're expanding their activities in in Syria, taking advantage of the fact that, that Russia is now focused uh, uh, elsewhere. And uh, we believe, in, in the estimates of experts, that Iran's breakout time is shrinking all the time, and they could have four nuclear weapons in four months, the first one even in a couple of weeks. There, There is opposition to the deal. You see members of Congress, Democratic members, writing to the president saying that they're opposed to it. We should be talking to our elected officials about the concerns we have. Uh, the Arabs certainly are, are expressing their deep concern because they're on the front line with Iran as well and see that this money will fuel the Houthis and the Hezbollah and Hamas and their other terrorist uh, activities. Uh, it, it, we saw the, the cyber attack against Israel this past week, and they say in response to Israel's attack against the drone factory, but they have armed thousands of, of drones ready to be launched. Uh, even though they don't have a real air force, but they can use missiles and drones perhaps to do as much damage as uh, as uh, was done by uh, aircraft. Um, so the, Iran is obviously going to take advantage uh, of this situation. Russia is going to leverage its position because they know the United States wants the deal. And uh, we will we'll only know if if we know even then when it is signed. But the the concern about uh, how how this is really playing out is uh, is valid. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world, the web at and the Nachumsegel Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. How long can Putin go? I mean, you know, it's a week later now, and uh, last week we were already speculating that he never thought he'd have this type of uh, opposition reaction pushback from the Ukrainians. Uh, obviously, the Ukrainians have a tremendous will and spirit and are being led by somebody who's uh, who's not letting them down in that area. Uh, I mean, is there going to be a point where uh, he is, um, I don't want to say give up, but is there going to be a point where he's going to you know, take a ceasefire or some type of diplomatic negotiation seriously, or he's just going to keep going until he accomplishes his goal? So again, it's, it's not a yes or no answer. It's... Um you know, he suffered tremendous losses amongst his troops. Um, there are estimates up to 30,000 have been captured, killed. I think that's probably an exaggeration. But the fact that he suffered amazing losses over the, you know, the uh, period is, is not an exaggeration. I think it really is the uh, descriptive of, of things that have happened. Uh, they... They, you see the abandonment of, of vehicles and that the Russian soldiers don't really have a sense of the mission, at least that's what we're told, um, and are not they're fighting uh, by launching rockets, but the street combat uh, didn't seem to go well for them. Uh, so he faces this humiliation 
I think he thought it would be like the Crimea, and he would be able to just cut through, create the bargaining position, and then make the demands. Now you see that he's being very specific in what he, he wants, and there are talks going on, and Bennett is still playing a key role in it. He was in Moscow again, uh, I think the day before yesterday or yesterday, and he, um, you know, he's one of the few interlocutors who can speak to both sides. But the solution will only come when the pain, and I think it will come from the internal pressure on him, that when uh, the Russian people really turn the screws about um, from the inside and there is growing dissatisfaction, and clearly the oligarchs whose, whose finances are being ruined and who are major supporters uh, are going to increase that pressure as well, that that I think is is um, more telltale, and when uh, body bags come home, it's something that the Russians they don't can't tolerate. In in Syria, they burnt the bodies of Russian soldiers that were killed, uh, and he has talked about four or five hundred, whereas the Ukrainians talk about great multiples of that amount of, of the people who've been killed, and that they don't want the bodies back. The Russians don't take the bodies back, uh, so. That's that's the pressure, I think, that will build on him. And obviously the economic pressure on people with all the major companies pulling out, those jobs are lost, and it'll take a long time to rebuild. Obviously Ukraine will need hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild, but Russia's economy is going to uh, be impacted for a long time as well. So when somebody on Russian television news uh, you know, puts up a protest sign, they have to deal with that person very, very carefully because, as you're describing it, too many people in Russia now are siding with that person and are, and are sympathetic to the cause. Let's put that, it that that's way. That's a good point, actually, that the person who normally, I guess, would have been sent to the gulag or something was actually released, even though she held up a sign during the news. I saw Russian Channel 1 uh, this week when I was in Israel, and it was very disturbing. They had an hour-long show called Fake News, and they showed the depictions in the West of scenes, and then they showed what they said was the the truth. Obviously, I don't know, you know, which which uh, what was doctored and what wasn't on either side. But what was most troubling to me is that they had a depiction of a caricature, which was a traditional anti-Semitic character of a guy with a hooked nose and squunched face and high hat, which is very typical of a lot of the anti-Semitic. Um, dolls and other things that are, are sold in Russia and East Europe. And uh, uh, we've heard other references uh, when Putin talked about those who went to Miami and, and Monaco, and, you know, hints of it. Uh, I'm not saying he's engaging in an anti-Semitic campaign because I don't know, but we hear more and more references and stuff now starting to say, well, the Jews are responsible or Israel's responsible um, with no basis, in fact, obviously, in that it's not unusual to happen, <clears throat> but when I see that caricature, that worries me. Uh, just back to the point for you know, in terms of the uh, the general public in Russia, um, and this really has to do with uh, what I asked earlier about uh, how impatient or patient Putin would be in terms of trying to accomplish his goal. If the public pressure is going to be so great on him, and you're expecting it that as days go by. It's just going to increase like crazy. I mean, it, will that be enough to cause him to stop? Will that be enough to get him to the negotiating table? If he has a ladder to climb down and can show something, if they agree not to join NATO, if they, you know, agree to certain other uh, things that 
don't uh, impinge their freedom of action. They can't allow a situation. Um, with, and if, like they, uh, like we saw in Georgia or others, where the Russians permanently occupy, uh, the question is: Will they be willing to officially acknowledge Russian hegemony in Crimea and in Donbass, uh, or in one or the other? Will they work out some general <coughs> deal, such as a pledge not never to join NATO or not to join NATO now? I think if he gets those things and is able to show his people that he defended Russian honor and all the sacrifices were worth it, which is going to be difficult, uh, uh, short of uh, some sort of a blatant victory, that um, uh, that's why I think that we have to make sure that there are ladders for him to, to come down with some, you know, what he perceives as dignity on it. I wonder if that's uh, to the advantage of this situation, then, that the president of the United States is going next week. Maybe the calculation is that if he gives it a bit more time, they'll be closer to be able to provide those ladders than if he would have gone this week. Or just a guess. I don't know if, you know, I don't know. Maybe that, uh, may, and maybe because the behind-the-scenes talks are leading to something, then his, uh, you know, having the president there would enable them to move it faster though i'm not i'm not sure that that is the situation where will he be physically in poland like is that he'll be in one of the nato countries is that the the plan i Maybe. don't know they didn't announce his uh, itinerary but you'd be shocked if he actually went to the ukraine right i mean that would be i would be i think the security situation would be very risky but um but i, I think it's possible that uh, you know the, look these foreign ministers others across the border when in Right. You know, they could meet on the border or near the border. They don't have to go all the way into Kiev, uh, into, um, Kiev to, to, to meet. But, um, you know, the, there, are, there are options. You've seen pictures of Zelensky moving around as well. Uh, and these f- foreign officials who are coming in uh, to the country. I wonder if they regret the sending the vice president to the region because there are probably better qualified people in the administration to... Uh, to represent the U.S. and its interests. Do you think that was a, uh, I don't know, a ter- was there a terrible result from that visit, or, or or everybody made it through and it's not that big of a deal? I don't think it made a difference one way or the other. Um, you know, the idea was to show the flag and have the, the vice president. Unfortunately, the, all the attention goes to the gaps and to the um, uh, comments. I don't think... You know, it, it, it made a big difference one way or another. I think it's just the United States is showing that it's committed and concerned and to put pressure on our allies to do more. And could you describe what the United Nations is or is not doing now about this whole situation? I mean, we all have our perception of why, of why the U.N. exists and what its role is supposed to be. Uh, what are they or are, are they not doing now in regard to Russia and the Ukraine? Well, they're very limited because you have the veto of China and Russia on any measures against them, but they are involved in humanitarian work uh, near the borders of, or uh, maybe even inside Ukraine. Uh, but you, you just see how feckless an organization it is, how meaningless that this could take place. So this is exactly the situations for which it was created. If, God forbid, you know, Israel was involved, you can be sure we've had 27 resolutions and all sorts of uh, measures uh, being taken. And we're eclipsing, by the way, the existence of this commission of investigation, which is getting very little attention, but is really a dangerous initiative on their part because it's time. It's not time limited. 
and it has an unlimited budget, and it's, it's like establishing a law firm just to prosecute Israel within the United Nations, in addition to the existing committees that are promoting the Palestinian cause and for which millions and millions of dollars are allocated each year. Uh, there are two, two such uh, bodies. And this is now uh, an additional one that I think is, it should be taken with far greater seriousness uh, than it generally is. We are working on it, and we've been mobilizing and, and trying to uh, to keep attention focused on it, but obviously it's very hard given Iran and given um, the situation in, in Ukraine. So the U.N. role is, uh, it seems to be pretty marginal. Um, the... Um the number, according to the Jerusalem Post, of Russian casualties is over 14,000. You used the figure 3,000 before about Russia or about the Ukraine in terms of uh, war casualties? Oh, maybe you were referring to the army, I would assume. Right? Uh, well, the, the, the number of dead that they keep, I'm saying that there are so many estimates, it's up right. to 30,000 right. in, in a of... report that came out this morning from the uh, from Ukrainian sources that of those who have been taken prisoner, those who have been killed, those who whom they're holding, um, that number seems to me to be somewhat uh, implausible, but it's so huge. Uh, but the the fact that, that um, and, and I've spoken to officials who, who were telling us numbers already two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, of 10,000 killed and 9,000 killed, and President Zelensky has used this. And I think they'll be careful with the numbers because they know that that's something that can be proven or disproven. But the, the the number clearly is very high, and uh, you know, given the fact that they're only in some places engaged in actual street warfare, it means that the Ukrainians are attacking them. You see, this convoy can't move. You see how many trucks are being abandoned and and vehicles, uh, armored carriers, tanks, and there are even cases where they're selling the gasoline from their vehicles. Uh, and many of them are abandoning and just running into the forest and, and asking for for um, safe haven. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be a high level of motivation. And now there's talk about bringing volunteers from Syria. There were volunteers from Chechnya, which is scary because they're very vicious fighters. Um, supposedly there were teams, including from Chechnya, sent to assassinate Zelensky, and so far they've been um, neutralized or haven't acted. Uh, and you have to say that it's it's remarkable how they've held out and without using their air force. Ukraine still has an air force, and most of their planes are intact. But they're saving them for the battle over Kiev and uh, uh, and are asking for more, uh, and especially MiGs, which their pilots are used to flying, to um, to counter the Russian dominance in in the sky. Uh, but they don't have. Um, they have Stinger missiles. They have other anti-tank missiles, which are really very important uh, for protecting in battles that are taking place today. Do you think Putin's in uh, regular contact with the leader of China? I think he is absolutely in regular contact with the leader of China. And you mentioned uh, earlier about this NATO membership, you know, possibly being a negotiating ship if they ever get to the negotiating table. What about membership in the EU? Is that a uh, a far-flung idea? that Ukraine could become a member of the EU? It's not far-flung, but I just don't think that that, that doesn't upset them as much as being part of a, of a military alliance. Um, but um, so far, it, it, Ukraine wasn't admitted to the EU, so it's nothing 
imminent. Um, you saw that uh, Russia was was thrown out of the Council of Europe, of which it's been a member for 26 years. And this is another one of the sanctions that are, are being applied. Frankly, if the war keeps going, then the Europeans might use this as leverage and start moving to make uh, Ukraine uh, a member, but also countries like Moldova and others that have applied for uh, some level of membership or association with the EU, with NATO, with other things, uh, could be uh, admitted, which is also going to be taken very seriously by Russia. Boy, oh boy. Well, we'll see what happens. Malcolm and but I... But there is good news, and you should look. There are going to be direct flights to Sharm el-Sheikh, whether you think it's good news or not, from Tel Aviv. But also the UAE, Morocco, they're all starting uh, uh, flights, um, regular flights in the next weeks. Uh, so they're, they're, And the Abraham Accord, I saw in Israel delegations, 50 businessmen from Morocco, other delegations from the UAE. Things really, um, uh, as, uh, really remarkable developments in in uh, that regard, and we see even uh, uprisings in Gaza against the fact that the government is building these mosques at the cost of multiple millions of dollars, and saying that's not where the money money has to go to the people. So maybe this will awaken people to uh, to look at the, some of the corruption in the countries in the Middle East and elsewhere and lead to some good. Amen to that. Malcolm and I remind everybody that when you uh, have this desire, which I hope a lot of people do to help people in the Ukraine and help refugees who've left the Ukraine, uh, make sure that uh, you're doing so through uh, responsible institutions. There are many great organizations that are leading efforts both with supplies and with funds, and uh, we encourage that. Just make sure that uh, uh, you uh, are confident in their abilities to actually get those supplies and funds to the people who need them. Uh, Malcolm, a happy Shushan Perm. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak in Mir Hashem next week. I hope everybody sobers up and uh, <laughs> have a great Shabbos. Mir Hashem will talk next week. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with the weekly update right here at JM in the AM.